0: Welcome to The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with host Michael Lerner and his guest John Esterly, Executive Director of the Whitman Institute. John Esterly, welcome to The New School.
1: Thank you, Michael. Good to be here.
0: You are the Executive Director of the Whitman Institute, which is a a very interesting uh, foundation in San Francisco. What does the Whitman Institute do?
1: Well, our mission is to uh, work toward a more peaceful and sustainable world by promoting respectful dialogue, critical thinking, and um, active and vibrant citizen engagement. And how do you do that? We fund organizations that in their work um, are process-oriented in terms of bringing dialogue into their work to support better thinking, uh, more effective problem solving, more collaborative and participatory decision making. So what makes us different from a lot of foundations is we're explicitly process oriented rather than issue oriented.
0: And what would be an example of a, a leading grantee with whom you work that you think exemplifies that kind of work?
1: Uh, one grantee would be who we have supported for a long time. Uh, it's called On the Move, which is a nonprofit based in Napa. And they do uh, a lot of leadership development work with uh, younger people. They do a lot of work within the Napa community. And why we have funded them is in their organizational culture, they build in. Um, dialogue, reflection, um, a lot of uh, peer learning into their organizational culture. So it's kind of steeped in everything they do, both internally and in working with communities. Now what they're doing in Napa at the moment is creating something they call the Democracy Zone. So it's really trying to engage a particular neighborhood in Napa called the McPherson Neighborhood, bring the community into dialogue with each other to bring more of their own voice into the direction their community takes.
0: Now I met through the Whitman Institute, Leslie Medine, who mm-hmm. is a,
1: a force of nature, an extraordinary
0: uh, woman, uh, who's done a number of dialogue-related things in the course of her career. And you mentioned her work in, in Napa taking a a neighborhood, which is, what, I think 60% Latino and Mm -hmm. 40% Anglo. I think part of her fundamental question is whether a bicultural community can actually engage across these cultural bounds as opposed to living side by side.
1: Yeah, and I think... um and that's an ongoing question. And they're also working with the schools in this neighborhood, and those schools are, I think, 90% uh, Latino. Um, but you bring up a good point in terms of the, the challenge of engaging across difference, um, and that's a, a particular uh, focus of the Institute when we look at dialogue. We're particularly interested in how people can engage across difference. Whatever that may be, it can be uh, lots of manifestations of that.
0: Have you ever thought about what the limits of engaging across difference are?
1: Oh, yes. You know, I think there are uh, uh, limits you run into in terms of there has to be some willingness, I think, on the part of people to engage in dialogue. Mm -hmm. If If that willingness isn't there, it makes it pretty problematic from the get So There needs to be a
0: a willingness to engage, and doesn't there need to be a willingness to listen to each other in a deep way?
1: Yes, yeah. And for me, listening is the core of dialogue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the foundational piece. And so, uh, you're completely right. If there's not a willingness to listen, and listen with under with the urge for understanding, then it makes it uh, very hard for for it to go forward. I think the part about listening also in, within dialogue is the point about listening with empathy and understanding as opposed to in a debate if you're really listening with an ear towards how you can um, uh, puncture the other person's argument. They're both modes of listening, but one is listening uh, with a much more uh, critical orientation rather than an orientation to, uh, to really understand and get a sense of the other person's perspective. And what
0: about the spirit in which one speaks as well as listens in deep dialogue across differences. What are the rules of thumb about how one speaks in such a setting?
1: Well, depending on the setting, there's probably different agreements and rules. I think uh, generally uh, people are urged to speak in an I voice, Mm -hmm. uh, speak from their own experience. Why is that Uh, important? because it minimizes the tendency to make assumptions about what other people uh, think and feel. I think it also keeps you grounded in a more authentic way to speak from your experience and from how you see things. Now to do that actually is oftentimes, it's riskier than to ascribe opinion to someone else or to speak to someone else because Why is it riskier because you're sharing more of yourself and so you're a little more vulnerable um so uh when you open yourself up in that way it can you want it to be in a safe and trusting space um and i think uh that can be uh difficult to do sometimes. I think also when you're speaking you don't you want to be speaking in a respectful way towards other people. Um, Ideally you want to not um, be attacking in your language towards someone else. And perhaps
0: Um, not to be overly identified with what you're saying.
1: Yeah. That's...
0: That wonderful bumper sticker that says, uh, don't believe everything you think. is that? Yeah. 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 So yeah. that capacity not only to listen uh, with compassion and, uh, and a true desire to understand the other person, but also to speak, to use the I language, to speak respectfully and to not be excessively identified with one's own. Point of view.
1: Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, far easier said than done. You know, I think it is generally hard for us to separate our sense of self from our beliefs or opinions, so that because that's difficult, if someone challenges our belief or our opinion or our perspective, we immediately can go on the defensive because what we hear is it's an attack on our who we are. And, and who would you say you are? Who would I say I am? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Well, I would say I'm a, I'm a humanist. Mm-hmm. I'm a generalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I'm someone who... Uh, tries to live their life based on values of curiosity and compassion, um, kindness. Um, I think in the big picture scheme of things, I would say I'm uh, someone who... derives core value and meaning from my relationships in the world and and so that's for me, the uh, my sense of spirituality for me comes from my relationships and mm-hmm. love with others and probably my relationship with nature, mm-hmm. things like that. And when you
0: say you're a humanist, there are different meanings that are ascribed to the word humanist,
1: what kind of humanist would you say you are? I would say that probably the traditional secular humanist definition in that I believe that um, humanity, humans can come to agreements on how to live together based on core values of how we should be treating each other uh, rather than ascribing the need for a higher power to be uh, informing how we should live our lives. So from that perspective
0: when you speak to someone whose life is grounded in a belief in a higher power are you speaking
1: across difference? I would say so. Um, I mean, I think that I would be wanting to certainly listen respectfully and I honor those that belief. Um, but I would hope that uh, there would be Tolerance, I guess, would be a core part of my humanism, Mm -hmm. that part of being a humanist is to be uh, open and uh, accepting of other people's uh, beliefs in terms of how they live their lives, what what they see the core meaning of their lives are, as long as they're not destructive to other people. Mm
0: -hmm. Um. You have a remarkable group of, of grantees and and full disclosure uh, that that the new school at Commonweal is among your community. So uh, I am a, a grantee mm-hmm. of the Whitman Institute. Uh, but one of the, the things that you do, many foundations just make a bunch of grants and people don't get together, but you gather your community, what, once a year almost...
1: Yeah, one, uh, about y- once a year and a half now. Right. So, so. And, uh, and it's an extraordinary group of people. Uh,
0: you mentioned uh, Leslie Medin's work, um, but there are many others, some of whom are familiar to uh, uh, partners in the new school. Mark Gerzon, uh, for example, of the Mediators uh, Foundation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Say a word about Mark's work.
1: Uh, Well, Mark's work, Mediators Foundation, is an an incubator of lots of different projects and um, uh, themes. I I, I don't know if themes is the right word. But Mark's vision of Mediators Foundation is rooting uh, dialogue into um, uh, collaborative problem-solving and decision-making, again, in service of creating a more peaceful and just and, and sustainable world. Mark, is, as you know, is, is um, a facilitator of, of renown and um, has kind of specialized in a lot of his work in working with groups who have pretty oppositional viewpoints uh, oftentimes.
0: He's facilitated Republican-Democratic meetings in the Congress. He has worked with Palestinians and uh, Israelis. He's recently been uh, working in Nepal. Nepal, And and you and I participated uh, in a conversation he held at uh, Ideo, is that the name Hmm. of the organization? Ideo. Ideo, which is a remarkable design firm in Palo Alto. And he has this extraordinary concept of Creating, in effect, a, a laboratory for enhanced global decision making. His concept is that so many of the most important decisions in the world are made in astonishingly subpar situations, mm-hmm. while corporations uh, spend tremendous resources on creating environments in which their key decisions are made in optimal Mm -hmm. Mm situations. So the question of what information is available, what the setting is, what the facilitation is like. And he makes a very strong case for the fact that life and death decisions about the world are constantly being made in horrendous Mm contexts. So it's, again, another one of your grantees. Yeah, Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, and I and I think that the uh, one of his uh, strong points he he makes uh, in that vein is that we don't make the decisions to operate according to what we really know about what works. In other words, there's a lot of information out there about how to. Uh, how to facilitate meetings. There's a lot that's known about what's the best use of technology in bringing um, information into the room. There's a lot that's known about how the physical space that we meet actually affects uh, the outcomes of a meeting. But we tend not to act on what we know. um, And I think that's central
0: to the importance of what the Whitman Institute yeah. is trying to do. In mm-hmm. other words, you're, you're saying to the world, really, uh, let's focus at least some resources on process, on yeah. not just on the substantive area, but on what we know about how to enhance good decision-making.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's one of the central arguments we're trying to bring to the public, is that, and that's where to explicitly raise up the value of process, the value of um, relationships and and building relationships over time. Because I think what we tend to do is take those things for granted, or we ignore them. And I think as long as that's the case, they will continue to be under-resourced. And so, to our detriment, I think, at all levels of society. So part of what we're trying to do is raise up the awareness of the importance of taking the time to engage in dialogue, taking the time to reflect, taking the time to make sure you have all the voices in the room who are being impacted by a decision uh, before moving forward. Now, the big challenge is that those things, doing that does take time and it does take resources. Mm-hmm. And I think traditionally in terms of our organizations, we see that type of stuff as like a bonus or an extra. If things are going well, we have some time, maybe we'll do a retreat, maybe we'll do some professional development. But when... Things get um, challenging or difficult, those are often the first things to go because they're not seen as essential. And I think our position at the Institute is actually that they're not secondary, that these processes of dialogue and reflection and uh, participatory uh, decision-making critical thinking, they're actually that should be the engines that drive an organization. Um, in the time we're in now, I think that's a more challenging argument to make more than ever, but it's one that I think essential to make. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, Absolutely. Now, you are the, uh, I think president is the
0: right word, of a, a group of... Uh, Funders uh, in an organization or a network called Pace, philanthropy for active civic engagement. So, is that your primary reference point in the foundation community, where you find partners who share these values and process and, and dialogue?
1: Yeah. I, yeah. So, I'm the president of the board uh, of Pace and. Yes, I would say that's my primary one now. And PACE is a, um, uh, we define ourselves as a learning collaborative of funders who are funding and interested in civic engagement, broadly defined, and who also have an interest of um, uh, broadening the discussion within philanthropy about the value of looking at whatever you're doing through a a civic engagement lens.
0: Right. Now, civic engagement is often used as a code word for sort of politics by other means, in other words. uh, but, But what's interesting about the Whitman Institute is that although many of your grantees are, in fact, politically progressive in one way or another, you also do a fair amount of funding of what you could call a a pure philosophical interest in in dialogue wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious as to whether the Pace community is primarily committed to uh, progressive political outcomes achieved through empowerment, or whether it also includes that broader curiosity about the human adventure and the nature of life, which is part of the work that you do within the Whitman Institute?
1: I would say there's probably a range of where the members of PACE are on that question. Um, I would say PACE would not define itself as a progress a progressively oriented uh, uh-huh. political group.
0: Um, are there conservative funders within it who share the interest in... Uh, uh, there
1: are... Conservative foundations. Uh, I, I would say the major, if you would break down the the majority of members, would be mm-hmm. progressive. But I would say our uh, interest in civic engagement mm-hmm. is is on citizens' involvement with uh, political and cultural and community life. So we're As as a group, we're interested in things like deliberative democracy, um, other kinds of forms where the emphasis is on public voice and public participation rather than saying it explicitly being about social justice or equity issues. You know, there's another um, uh, affinity group group, that focuses on the civic engagement side, more on voting and and things like that. And the question you raise is, I think, one that comes up for um, funders who fund in this arena in that do you see civic engagement as a, however broadly defined, whatever your work you're doing in that, as a, a means to achieve an end, an issue end? Or are you funding the work because you think the process of participation and engagement has value in itself, and that communities will will go where they go with those processes? And and does does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. sense. One
0: could argue that the Tea Party, for example, is an extraordinary example of spontaneous development of public voice,
1: yes, right, know. yes, uh, oh, oh yeah, uh, uh, very much so, and and um, there's a uh, 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 critic named uh, Bill Chambra who, uh, uh, philanthropy and and um, writes a lot about philanthropy and more from the conservative side, and I think some, and the point he makes sometimes, uh, if I've uh, understood him rightly, is sometimes when we talk about civic engagement, it's like, well, whose civic engagement are you talking about? You know, there's arguably a a lot of civic engagement, but if it's not of the political persuasion you're promoting, then you tend to either not want to value it or not want to acknowledge it and, and focus your efforts on... Raising the participation of um, of those who are more in line with your own political viewpoints,
0: and I I have to say that that for myself that I think the deeper and more interesting questions come when you detach yourself from your pat- particular political perspective, uh, and and ask yourself what promotes democratic engagement throughout the democratic polity on both sides of of political issues that that there's nothing wrong in fact it's important and powerful to pursue progressive or for that matter conservative political goals through civic engagement strategies but the deeper question is since progressives and conservatives are Sort of the yin and the yang of the mm-hmm. of the polity as a whole, the deeper question is, are we going to have engaged citizens on both sides mm-hmm. of these spectra, and what are the criteria by which that works and you actually recently posted on your blog for the Whitman Institute uh, uh, a, a question about that uh, you you wrote an essay about a um, a uh, conference that you went to uh, on the Deliberative Democracy uh, Consortium and the Democracy uh, Imperative. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And your, your essay was called Social Innovation and Democracy. And you said there were two key questions. One was, how do we move from diffuse democratic experiments to a more just and comprehensive system? And how do you prepare citizens to participate? Now, what's interesting about that to me is when you say a more just and comprehensive system, you signal a progressive agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, there seemed to me, I don't know why I felt this, to be uh, in your essay more than a question about a progressive agenda that you were asking the deeper question: Am I reading you right?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you're reading me right. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, language is always uh, such a curious thing. How using the word "just" brings to mind a, a political connotation mm-hmm. of why. Why, why is that? You know, when we hear a word like justice, why does that scare some people off and signal a red flag as to one orientation and, and not to another? You know, part of me would go, wouldn't justice, you know? Now, we all then bring our different definitions of what we mean by justice. Now that's End a very that, fair point. You know.
0: So that, for example, a strict constructionist constitutionalist would say, yes, I want justice according mm-hmm. to the original vision of the Founding Fathers. And as I read that, that's free markets and as little mm-hmm. taxation and as little government as possible. Yeah. So yes, I want justice. Right. But So your point is, we don't have to read that as a progressive agenda. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah.
1: So- and, and I think that sometimes is where it... Language does present barriers to people being able to engage across difference. Um, And that's why I think uh, empathic dialogue that pays attention to language is really important. I actually think, um, and, and Ed Conboy, who you recently talked to, he's been a great teacher for me in that way of really paying attention to the language that people are using because in conversation we, we just assume so much about what we're hearing, about what people mean by what they're saying. And sometimes it can be surprising just to ask people what they mean by the word they're using. That can be, sometimes they're not even sure of their meaning themselves, if you really get down to it. Or then other times they will talk about what they're meaning and you'll realize, oh, I thought you meant something completely different. So I think for me, one of the gateways to engaging across difference is really paying attention to the language we use and being willing to unpack it with each other.
0: You mentioned Ed Conboy, a, a psychotherapist with deepest interests in philosophical issues who's worked with uh, uh, nonprofits and corporations and athletes uh, on optimal performance and uh, does a lot of work now in Philadelphia with uh, very disadvantaged communities um, working as a psychotherapist there. Um, you engaged him as a partner in the work of the Whitman Institute. He's written a number of essays that you have on the website. What brought you to engage Ed Conboy as a partner in the Whitman Institute? What did you see him bringing to your work?
1: Well, it kind of links back to uh, the organization on the move I talked about earlier. as That's where I first met Ed, as he was facilitating uh, uh, staff reflection groups within On The Move. Um, uh, and so it was by coming in and observing what he was doing and then over time kind of being a kind of participant observer of the group work that he was doing um, that led to uh, us working together. And what, in, in what was he institute.
0: doing that struck you so much?
1: Well, the one thing that struck me so much first at the beginning was that an organization was actually carving out time for the staff to come together in uh, uh, reflective dialogue to look at their work, really making a commitment as, as an organization uh, to bring that process and that tool uh, into, their, uh, into their work. So what struck me about Ed was... Um, his ability to really listen to people's uh, language, uh, and sometimes that would also be body language, but to really pay attention to the language and the metaphors they were using, because he was—he's—he's uh, he's a kind of a, a, a master at getting people to use the metaphors that they use as a way to really explore more deeply what they're thinking and feeling. Because you know, sometimes we'll, we'll throw out a metaphor, uh, you know, um, uh, and we throw it out, but we don't really stop and go, well, why did I use that particular metaphor? Uh, and, and then when we stop that and explore that, sometimes it can open, open gateways into looking at our own uh, thinking that are, that are uh, instructive.
0: Leslie Medin, who's the force behind On the Move, um, once said, and I don't have the language quite right, but she was talking about their work with youth development, and she basically said something, and maybe even Ed Conboy quoted her, but she said something like that the secret to youth Development is adult reflection, or something like that.
1: Well, you're looking at youth development and adult development as right. well. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: And and I think her point was that in order for an organization or a community to do good work with young people, it started with the staff reflecting on its set, a yeah. commitment to the staff reflecting on its own process as deeply as they reflected on the work with the younger people.
1: Yeah. And that's something I uh, learned, a question that Leslie posed, that, that I carry with me in our work at the institute in lots of different ways, and it, it's a question that led to them starting the, the, what they called at the time, adult reflection within their group, and that was that the staff was holding the youth to all these wonderful standards, taking risks, learning from mistakes. Uh, that kind of thing. And they asked themselves, as a staff, are we holding the, ourselves to the same standards that we're holding the youth we're looking, working with? And the answer was, no, not really. So then it was, well, so what do we do about that? So that's why the. Uh, that
0: brought Ed Convoy
1: in to do this work. To do that with work. Them. And so it is a question that sticks with me. Because basically it's, you know, variation. Are you walking your talk? Are you, are you modeling yourself the things that you're saying are important for others to be doing? This came up in another variation in um, Rachel Kessler's work with Passage Works.
0: And Let's just say, by way of parenthesis, that our... Dear friend Rachel Kessler died uh, recently, and she was Mark Garzon's wife, and Passage Works is this extraordinary body of work that she developed, bringing dialogic ritual processes into public schools and creating transformational educational experiences in public schools that even evangelical Christians supported, Mm -hmm. so that it was... It, here it was a a process that you usually only find in the best of private schools, which she figured out how to do in public school environments, often enormously alienated environments, mm. bringing teachers and students together. So, just a parenthesis yes. about the power of her work. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and her her death is a is a great loss. Right. She was a remarkable woman. Um, But part of what Rachel brought to her work with this focus on bringing social and emotional learning into the classroom was paying attention to that the teachers needed to also be modeling those social and emotional skills that they were wanting their students to learn. And if they weren't, then there's a basic disconnect there. So for instance in PassageWorks' approach they pay a lot of attention attention to also supporting the teacher so that they're able to model what it is they're teaching in in an, in an authentic way um, and i think that you know it it's it sounds so simple but it's really hard to do and in, in a lot of this stuff is actually um, uh, living yourself what it is you're wanting others to practice and do. Uh,
0: You know, that's a very rich vein for me. Uh, As you know, we've done these week-long programs for cancer patients at Commonweal for the last 25 years. And and we have a staff of uh, probably about a dozen people, many of whom have been working together for... 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And almost none of them leave. Uh, they, they stay in this work for very long mm-hmm. periods of time. And I think the power of these week long retreats reflects to an extraordinary degree uh, the fact that this community of facilitators of this work came together in a way that reflects just an enormous uh, affection for each other and a sense of collaborative service and Mm -hmm. co-invention of this instrument. But one of the things that, a a, a distinction that I think is useful is when you said that are the adults holding themselves to the same standards that they're holding the kids to, I think it's also possible for, quote, spiritual communities to have very elevated ideas about who they are and what they're doing that create massive uh, shadow Mm -hmm. and that that shadow uh, can deeply sabotage both Mm -hmm. the work of the staff and of the community they're working Mm -hmm. with. I think one of the the things that we've tried hard to do at Commonweal is to not be a spiritual community, to be an ordinary place where ordinary people go to work, who are going to make mistakes, Mm -hmm. who are going to do all kinds of things wrong. And I don't think we get rid of shadow, but at least it's distributed somehow mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. smaller yeah. puddles than is the case when everybody thinks they're so spiritual and so evolved, uh, and they're just not looking at their humanity yeah. in toto. Yeah. Um, and I, I So that's my reflection. Mm-hmm. But I, mm-hmm. I wonder, when you talk about holding the adults to the same standards that the kids are held to, is there the, the secular equivalent of the, the pooling of shadow uh, or is there a way of thinking about that that does not pool shadow, that, mm-hmm. that makes sure we all stay human?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I I think so. I think that 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 shadow is is there. I think I think f- the that that shadow side rises with the uh, sometimes the, the the righteousness that people right, bring exactly. to their frame, and so that can uh, happen across the p- political s- spectrum. Absolutely. I actually I w- I was thinking of. Um the talk you did with Colin Greer on uh, the podcast, and uh, where you ended that conversation with him. And if I was hearing him right, he was basically saying uh, 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 a problem or a challenge has been and continues to be for progressives, broadly defined, is they have not really found a way to authentically engage, with the people they disagree with politically and that until they do it's problematic that they're going to get the wider embrace of their vision of society that they're looking for. I actually think that, um, and that's why I'm, I'm curious, a need for progressives to be talking in a more open way with people who of, of different uh, political persuasions than, than they mm-hmm. have.
0: And you, um, Colin Greer, being the president of the New World Fund in New York, a, a fellow philanthropist with you and, and uh, an extraordinary uh, force in progressive mm-hmm. philanthropy. And we talked to him about Spinoza and a mm-hmm. play that he had written about Spinoza in his spare time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of your... Uh, most remarkable uh, uh, grantees uh, is the uh, the World Cafe Project. Mm-hmm. Could you say a word about about that? Uh,
1: the World Cafe uh, Community Foundation is uh, a uh, organization that was uh, founded by Juanita Brown and David Isaacs, who were the co creators of what's called World Cafe, which is a um, dialogue process that th- is used uh, in corporations and communities, all range of settings. All over the world. All over the world. And they came up with this process, which is really a way of enabling groups of Ten people to a thousand people to engage in uh, rounds of conversation that, that uh, move a, uh, uh, a dialogue. So forward. how does it work? Well, so tr- uh, traditionally how it would work is you say you would have uh, a group of 50 people. They would uh, be seated at ideally round tables. There'd be four people at a table. Um, there's, uh, paper on the table and markers so people can be, uh, uh, making marks as the conversation goes on. And there have been, uh, say two sets of questions that have been identified as ones that the, the group is going to explore together. So depending on how much time you have, say this first table, uh, each person at the table starts by responding to the to the question.
0: What's um, a typical question?
1: Um, well, as uh, uh, my understanding from Juanita and, and David and Tom Hurley, oftentimes it's a you a, a first question is one that reflects more appreciative inquiry, something that's moving towards you know, what what works, what you're doing. So, um, actually, we're going to be having a uh, session at Northern California Grantmakers in April, where we're going to be trying the World Cafe there for the first time. So, the first question uh, is going to revolve around uh, what are you funding in civic engagement, broadly defined, and what are you finding about what what works in that. So it's kind of an entree way into people being able to talk about that. Then what you do is after you've had however much time you've allotted for that table, three of the people at that table then go and disperse to to other to other tables. One person stays behind. You get a new group of three people coming to the table. They each bring what has with them what's informed their own discussion and you ideally then do another round with that question and then after that you'll proceed to a different question that ideally builds on that question so if it and so in this example if it was if the first question was about what's your work what's exciting you about your work you know then the, sec- the, the se- other round might be, well, what might we do together that we can't do alone? And then and try- after
0: you've done these two rounds with each of these two questions, so by that time, people have been at four tables. And since each time they meet three new people, yeah. by that time, they've met 12 new people. Uh, so if it were a group of 50 people, by the end of this process, they know a quarter of the people in the room. They've sat down with them in a somewhat intimate setting. So then at the end of that, there's a harvesting process in which the question is, what are the common themes? Mm -hmm. And I experienced this for the first time uh, at uh, the Whitman Institute uh, gathering last year. And I found it an extraordinarily powerful... Uh, methodology. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I like about it, it is, it's a pure inquiry methodology. In other words, this doesn't have a political valence one way or the other, unless that happens to mm-hmm. be the question. But the technology itself, the social technology itself, is a pure inquiry uh, methodology.
1: Yeah, and it and it's a technology that really enables you to get uh, more uh, intimate connections and conversations mm-hmm. with people, too, and get a, a reshuffling of perspectives mm-hmm. that, y- you know, you don't necessarily get sometimes in other. you know. I mean, there's traditional things of, well, let's break up into small groups, but I think what was innovative about what they did was this notion of rotating groups, mixing up the groups, and continuing to build Having the questions ideally build on each mm-hmm. on each other, um, now, what's uh, uh, interesting about World cafe as an organization is you know th- when it was started and and they took a, an open source approach to the World cafe as a process so kind of from the beginning, they were committed to just making this technology available and and having Uh, the World Cafe Community Foundation be the entity for helping resource the uh, World Cafe. Now, over time, as you you said earlier, it has spread all over the world. world. So it's
0: an unbelievably powerful meme, you know, Mm -hmm. in the sense of an idea that spreads virally. Um, And I always am fascinated by people who manage to create virally powerful memes of that kind. The World Cafe is really in this field. Can you think of another meme that has had the same viral spread? I'm just curious that the World Cafe has had.
1: Um, In terms of that uh, scope, well, there's a couple things that come to mind. One is, for uh, uh, instance, an organization we're not funding now but it also has had a global reach but we funded for many years um, and that's called called the Socrates Socrates Café which which was founded by Christopher Phillips with this notion of um, creating uh, uh, ongoing groups where people come together to explore questions that matter to them and he originally started it out kind of doing it in a wide variety of places where people gather. Bookstores, cafes, um, libraries, senior centers, prisons and kind of going in with this notion of that philosophy isn't something um, that should be uh, the province of academia but philosophy is at its core is something ideally, that is accessible to all of us and that we practice and really just starts with the beginning question of why. Uh, Why do we think that? Or uh, what, and again, when I said earlier about language, a lot of times the question is um, unpacking what we mean by something. So you could have a dialogue on what is home, what, uh, you know, uh, and, and un- unpack that, you know, what is terrorism? What, you know, there's a whole, what is love? Um, uh, he, he famously, in his first book, uh, uh, where he met his wife was, um, he was doing, having you know, at Socrates Cafe, and that she was the only one who showed up. It was the first time they met. And that was the question they decided to um, Explore together in their own two person cafe. So so Chris would go in and, and kind of model how to facilitate a more uh, 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 Socratic dialogue, kind of rooted in empathy and curiosity. And then hopefully the group takes that on and, and meets and self sustains. Now there's, I believe, there's now about 500. Ongoing groups uh, around uh, the country and um, around and, and outside of the country, some uh, around the world as well. That's one. Another uh, one that I would talk about at the moment um, that is. In its emergent phase, but I think has a lot of potential as a as a as a current organization we 're funding called the Right Question Project. I
0: was going to ask you about the right question that's out of Cambridge yes, and uh, Liz Santana and uh, Dan Rothstein are mm-hmm. the folks there tell us about that what's that all about?
1: Well, so the right question project again it it's um, uh, promoting a process that basically uh, teaches people how to ask questions that are uh, important to them, how to ask um, quite accountable questions of uh, People that you're coming in contact with. What's an example? Well, so they're desi- they're primarily interested in bringing these skills of of questioning, really self advocacy skills, to uh, poor communities, um, and so they have a concept of what they call micro democracy, which is that any any opportunity where you're engaging with a public agency, whether it's the welfare office, uh, your kids' school, the unemployment office, um, your local community clinic, is an opportunity to practice um, democratic skills of bringing your voice, your participation, into asking questions. About um, your health, your school, and so there's. It, it's a kind of a training the trainer. Um. Sounds a little like
0: Sololinsky.
1: A little bit, but I th- their um, their uh, approach is really starts from a place of deep listening. To the people you're um, mm-hmm. uh, bringing these skills to, and really list first getting people to feel um, uh, uh, safe, I would say. Even the, 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 the ability to go, I can ask my own question. Mm-hmm. And when I ask my own question, Things happen in the world. So, the in that blog post uh, you referenced to, to bring make it try and make it concrete, they talked about a story of a woman who had um, participated in a, a a training that was um, uh, she had experienced through a, a, I believe it was an adult education class and. She. someone came to her door one day from the landlord with a paper saying, you need to sign this. And it would have been, basically, she would have been out of her apartment in a month if she would have signed it. And he was going, you need to sign it now. And because, uh, forgetting the details, but basically she just because she had had this experience she could say what is this right
0: why should I sign why
1: it? do I need to sign it so fast right. why do, and so she didn't sign it uh-huh. and so um, she didn't have to lose her right. place and it sounds simple no, but it's very empowering but it's very empowering yeah. and so I guess the point I'm, I'm wanting to and and what the right question project is finding is that these skills around asking questions uh, and and linking them to accountable decision-making can be practiced anywhere and everywhere. And, And so they actually have a vision of this as a process that could be resourced in many different contexts in many different ways rather than just being specific projects. Right. But, but their support for what they do tends to come, you know, voter engagement strategies or, or health issues, but they, they actually have a much broader vision, which I hope they realize, of, of uh, bringing that as a, as a process and a concept. Um,
0: many Last few minutes. Um, what have you learned from the many years that you've been responsible for the Whitman Institute community. How has it changed you to preside over this community of of dialogue and critical thinking?
1: Well, I would say, um, you know, it's interesting, because I've been at the Institute for 20, over 20 years now. And so for part of that tenure, it's been this newer community of, of, uh, of uh, grantees, then there was a long tenure of that uh, prior to that, of which I learned things some things from, too, um, working with uh, uh, our founder, Fred uh, Whitman. I would say the things I've learned uh, is the importance of taking time over time, uh, the importance of... Listening, the importance of building uh, relationships. Um, these are uh, and 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 increasingly, I'm I'm interested in the the uh, role that actual physical space plays in our ability to create community spaces for dialogue as as we as we move forward. I think things usually take longer than people think they're going to. And so when I talk about the importance of listening, of taking time over time, of building relationships, that's challenging because certainly within philanthropy, and this is not news to you, there tend to be shorter attention spans and time frames. So I think what often happens is we don't have the patience to stick with things so that they organically grow and emerge over time. And so a lot of times we're having to constantly reinvent the sets of relationships that have been built up. We have to reinvent what we know. you know, because sometimes I go, you, you look around and you go, why haven't we made more progress than we have on things? You know, if you look at education, it's like, don't we know, mm-hmm. at least on a rudimentary level, what would make for a, a good school now? And yet we, see, we go through these cycles of trying new things, having to deal with less resources, more resources. Um, so I, I think what I've uh, also learned from the, the communities and the grantees that I'm with, and it, I think speaks a little bit to the, the, your, your question about the, the, the mean, is that when it comes to these processes of dialogue and critical thinking, it's the ones that sound deceptively simple that have the most potential Mm -hmm. for transformation. Mm -hmm. And and that's it it, it's it's a funny place because sometimes you can be talking about this stuff and depending on who you're talking to, they can look at you like, well what's the big deal? What do you you know, you want people to talk about Well the World
0: Cafe is a perfect example. Just such right. a simple concept, right. but
1: unbelievably right. powerful Or what do you mean you want to teach people to listen? Right. Everybody listens, you know. So I think one of the big challenges, I think, for the century we live in is, are we going to uh, redefine or expand our vision of what literacy means? And I think we're at a point in time where it's, we need to expand it beyond reading and writing to a more uh, uh, fluent vision of communication as literacy, mm-hmm. listening as literacy. Uh, uh, you have media literacy. I mean, there's lots of people talking about um, this issue, but I think we to live in back to our beginning point ideally in a more humanistically-oriented world, we need to expand our sense of how we relate to each other, how we think, how we communicate, how we mean what we mean. Um, Because if we don't, I think, and and we take for granted that we know that stuff, we're going to continue to find it difficult to engage across difference.
0: So oh, Reading, writing, arithmetic, and reason in the ancient humanistic sense <laughs> yeah, I of the mean, word. It,
1: it, it's not like these are new, <laughs> uh, new things that, uh, that people haven't right. raised throughout uh, right. a long, long time, but I think it seems that the urgency right. to taking and practicing core elements of what have been said for centuries.
0: Uh, I have to ask is, is you, right who are the thinkers who have touched or influenced you uh, over the course of this uh, reflection on this work? Who, who are the uh, philosophers or literary figures or whoever who are touchstones for you in your life and in your work?
1: You know, I, I'd say on a on a uh, broad, more thematic scale, um, I would say I th- kind of opened up a new way of thinking about things for me was uh, in the eighties when I started reading uh, about social constructionism and uh, social and construction when, of reality. Yeah, the socia- uh, 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 and uh, at the time, I was interested in how looking at how media affects. Our uh, culture and viewpoints, and and, um, I'm forgetting the author, it was Peter Berg, is that right? Yeah, yeah, social construction of reality. And then there was a book that Walter Truett Anderson wrote Mm -hmm. called uh, Reality Isn't What It Used to Be. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: and I'd say more recently, you know, so in that vein, certainly. Ken Gergen at the Taos Institute, they've, they've, their whole exploration is around social constructionism. So that I have found um, uh, uh, a compelling exploration of the, how, do, how do we create meaning. And, and so how do we then, and off then that leads into how do we create meaning through language? How do we create meaning through relationships? Um, and
0: what about people that you've actually known or met who have particularly touched or moved you as you've moved through your life?
1: Well, I would say a really core learning experience for me that, that continues to inform my work was actually when I was in high school, and I was in uh, an Episcopal youth group. I wasn't uh, an Episcopalian. I was raised Catholic. But um, uh, my best friend Bob Fitch back then, his dad Stu, was an Episcopal minister. And he ran this youth group, which was so it was uh, teens, and he was a remarkably open-minded um, uh, minister who, you know, this, this is back in the early 70s when the human potential movement was going on. And, and he had a lot of his own curiosity. And so this group became kind of an ongoing reflection group in a way, encounter group, where Stu would kind of also bring and introduce to the group things that he was learning. So guided meditation, communication skills training, Jungian psychology, Alan Watts. He, We would kind of bring these things in, try them on. And even the first year I was in it, you know, we were... We were hip Jesus freaks for a while, and we're really reading the Bible a lot. But what was so this wonderful... Was where? Uh, in Lompoc, California, uh-huh. Uh-huh. a small town about an uh, hour north of Santa Barbara. And what was uh, wonderful about that group over time is, and, and how Stu um, uh, oversaw it, is he, he created a safe space where he let those of us in the group kind of steer where we wanted to go. He would introduce things, but he also opened a place for coming, people to come and talk about what was bugging them or whatever. So for me, having been raised up to that point, you know, Catholic, pretty narrow frame, I found that a very uh expansive learning experience. And so what has stayed with me out of that is the power of group process, uh, the power of, of, of dialogue and listening and um, taking time over time, uh, attention to relationships. And that kind of has stayed with me in a very core way uh, uh and, and 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 was one of the more profound learning experiences of my life you know that that period and
0: really one can see the arc from that to the Whitman institute
1: oh yes yes very much so there's one other piece i'd like to ask you
0: about uh you you spent some time went to sonoma state mm-hmm. university and uh Part of the Whitman community are faculty people from Sonoma State. One of your grantees is at the Hutchinson Mm -hmm. Center for Dialogue there. Uh, That seems like a remarkable intellectual community. Could you just say a few words about who's there and and how they've touched you?
1: Yeah, that was another very big seminal learning experience for me. Uh, So Hutchins is a school within Sonoma State, um... Uh, that uh, has a uh, focus on interdisciplinary thinking and um, seminars as the main, small seminars as the main uh, pedagogical tool. So again, I was in a program that was more interested in exploring with students um, how to think rather than what per se, or, or not an either or, but they had an interest in having students think about their thinking. And the way they did that primarily was through small seminars, small group discussions. And, and again, it reinforced for me the importance of looking at things from different perspectives, on an issue, and the importance and the value of group discussion as a helpful way to get you to look at your own assumptions.
0: And were there key thinkers that were held in particularly high regard in that community?
1: Well I I think different faculty probably had different uh, thinkers that they... uh, um, uh, you know, promoted and right. and and talked with, depending on the class they were doing. So it was I, I more was, the
0: process itself that stuck with you.
1: Yeah, it was more the process itself. There was, I mean, I I went there as a a, um, a, a junior, mm-hmm. so they have core classes for freshmen, softwares mm-hmm. for at the time i was there they had they were rooted in a lot of um kind of more of a uh, western uh civilization kind of approach they 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 had a core part of greek philosophy uh being part of that some of the core program um i think over time the faculty has taken a a more expansive look to you know what what constitutes the uh the core thinkers of the program. I don't think they do the Greeks quite as mm-hmm. much as they used to, and probably bring in more uh, uh, contemporary thinkers, perhaps uh, than they than they did. One of my, one of my professors there, Les Adler, um, is now on the board of the uh, institute and. My classes from the, one of the best classes I ever had there was one called Experiencing History, he was, and, um, which was a wonderful class where you kind of acted out in simulations different historical roles oh, that you fascinating. were getting
0: in. I'd actually like to close with a book that you lent me uh, when I told you that um, one of the questions I was asking myself was about the nature of wisdom. And you lent me a book called Wisdom, It's Nature, Origins, and Development by Robert J. Sternberg, uh, who is the editor. And it's a very extraordinary book, uh, Sternberg's at Yale, uh, because it turns out that uh, wisdom as a concept has essentially disappeared from contemporary philosophy. It's considered a, you know, unanswerable question, not a very interesting question. And uh, so there's a whole set of chapters, one by uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, an extraordinary man, called The Psychology of Wisdom, Evolutionary Interpretation, and many other really remarkable uh, chapters. But it seems to me, um, I'll take a leap here, that um, one of the core aspirations, in some sense, of um, of this dialogic approach to inquiry and reflection is some hope that wisdom is not an outdated concept that some mm-hmm. some hope that there is through group dialogue at least the opportunity to arrive at even forms of wisdom even if they're not singular but plural, that are operationally useful mm-hmm. to people. And um, so I will always um, be grateful that you introduced me to this wonderful book on wisdom and, um, and be grateful for the Whitman Institute and its uh, very unique work in the world. So thank you for being with us at the new school. Oh, thank, you for,
1: uh, yeah. thank you for having me, Michael. Okay.
0: You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org new school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on The New School and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at The New School.